Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Pork Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back to our coverage of House of the Dragon, Princess and the Queen, Episode 6, although part of me just wants to call it Episode 1 again, because so much changes, it's almost like we're looking at a whole new show. Yeah, honestly, it feels like a new season of television started. Like, the previous five episodes could have aired last year for all that it matters, because it's a definitive paradigm shift in everything that's going on. That's reflected not just in the the main new actors, that's the most obvious element, but also just that this was the biggest time jump so far. And there's a lot of the episode is hinting at what happened in the interim, I think mostly successfully, maybe not entirely, but mostly. And it's just a, it's a really ambitious episode across the board. And this is one I think we'll look back on as where the series could have gone drastically downhill. Like I can imagine a much worse, less successful version of this episode with kind of the same content. If the execution hadn't been as strong as it was in front of and behind the camera, this could have, this could have been where it lost people, but it does not seem to have been the case, which is great. That's exciting. Yeah, there's a very positive reaction to this episode. Uh, It is, I wouldn't call it overstuffed because that sounds negative, Mm -hmm. but it is one of the episodes where it feels like there's a lot going on and you could have honestly almost split this into two episodes given the weight of some of the things that happen. That's very true. But of course, we have uh, even more plot points to come in at even more furious pace, I think, over the next few episodes as we veer towards the, the next stage of all this and open war. First thing, first change to notice, obviously, we got some some new stuff going on in the opening credits. Yeah, I think uh, Chloe, uh, your partner in crime, uh, did a really good thread on Twitter about this over at Lies and Arbor. Added to the opening credits, like Blood River is uh, Damon's dragon helm, and we can see his offspring uh, coming off of it with symbols for Bela and Reyna. Um, the three kids Rhaenyra has had in the time inter- uh, time jump have also show up. Um, they might be sporting a strong sigil. It's hard to get a really good look at the medallion, um, but it does have like the turquoise coloring of uh, the Valerian sigils that we've seen so far in previous opening credit sequences and there's just some other looping parts around that i think chloe called out like this could be reminiscent of the high tower and other kind of factors that are not directly involved with the bloodline of the targaryens but are having an effect and redirecting the course of that blood flow yeah no those are all great points definitely check out chloe's thread at lies and arbor if you don't follow her which you should she pointed out some great things about the opening credits and i was i was really happy to see it because i'm you know i was kind of meh on them using the same score as Game of Thrones, but full credit to them for expanding visually. And that's something I also loved about the Thrones credits, how they kept changing and they shifted to different places on the map as the story shifted to those settings. And I love that it's the same idea here, but for characters that were remarking changes in time instead of space. And I think that's a, that's a great choice, especially as we have this huge time jump and get some new actors. Yeah, and speaking of the new actors, we meet them right away, uh, starting with Emma Darcy, who we hear with heavy panting before we even see them for the very first time in the role of Rhaenyra. And it's just an incredible introduction, or reintroduction, I should say, to Rhaenyra uh, following the time jump with a new actor. And specifically, they do it with a tremendous opening tracking shot that's all an extreme close-up shot of Emma Darcy's face, and they're going through the physical performance of birthing a child and then literally being called to present that child to the queen within a matter of seconds. So we see them have to get up and stumble through getting on their birthing gown. I don't know what that piece of uh, attire is called. And 
all of a sudden we're put into the new Rhaenyra shoes. Um, not even shoes. I think uh, they're walking barefoot in this scene. Uh, but it's a tremendous showcase for the actor to start off. And it's an incredible flex of camera work and staging that um, they had this real because it's a tracking shot for this like birthing scene. But everything's intimate. Everyone's close. Everyone's within like five to ten feet of each other but still there's a lot of motion a lot of zoom ins on the baby them kind of cleaning up the baby's nether regions uh putting a little cap on its head so you know the hair reveal comes a little bit later it's just a tremendously constructed scene to open this episode you talked about this really well on twitter just the the way these two shots are orchestrated you know these two big uh long long takes at the start of the episode and the second one, as, as we'll get to, is much more kind of fluid and takes you through a lot more space. And the first one, you may not even realize at first how long the take has gone on because it's so intimate and because it's so close up. But as, as I was saying, the big question coming into this episode is, is can they pull this off? Like, can they, can they make this leap? Is the show going to survive the transition to new actors with this big time jump? Or is it going to go down like, you know, Neo trying to make his first jump or Homer trying to get across the canyon on Bart's skateboard? Well... Happy to report that unlike those suckers, House of the Dragon made it across in one jump. And I, I really, I can't imagine a better start than this, specifically with Rhaenyra. To keep with the Simpsons references, it just, it works on so many levels. It's a parallel to her mother, of course. Many people have been pointing out that this is a, an echo of the, the Emma Aaron scene in the first episode. You have childbirth as this primal scene that kind of centers the audience and gathers our focus on this really, this really intimate and painful moment. And it's also a great metaphor for what's happening with the show. Like, you could say House of the Dragon is being reborn in this episode, and Rhaenyra is like the showrunners trying to give birth to a whole new baby as we watch. More than anything, though, this cements our intimacy with Emma Darcy, our new realm's delight. There's no distance, there's no detachment. We're with them every step of the way as they run the full gauntlet. You see pain, exhaustion, doubt, fear, relief, love and laughter, and all of that is before the plot shows up to pull her away. Already, it's a powerhouse performance. They really make use of the close-up, tensing up and giving way, building up the pain in every wrinkle so that when they smile and kiss the new baby, it feels like you've made it through the worst of it with them. All is right with the world. And then the camera jerks away like someone grabbed hold of it. The sudden instability of the shot perfectly matching Rhaenyra's feelings. That's how it feels when someone summons her away to the queen. Yeah, I think all the like tremendous Foley work that resulted from the birthing was not even done like making the squishy little like fleshy noises before the handmaid walks in and Rhaenyra is told that Allison has called for the baby and Rhaenyra is like, well, I'll take her myself. Um, and, you know, everyone's like, you know, you should be resting. And she's like, yes, I should. She's like keenly aware of exactly what's being asked for her. Um, it's, in fact, very similar to that season six throne scene where uh, Fat Walda has a child um, or just Walda, Walda Bolton um, has a child and Ramsey immediately calls for it because um, thankfully this baby is not thrown from a window or fed to the hounds or whatever it was, but um, it's immediately creating attention and Oh, it's like, oh, shit, here we go. Like five seconds after witnessing and watching something that was not pleasant to watch. I mean, I loved it. I love watching, you know, fuck, not fucked up shit, but, you know, kind of difficult television to watch. This is a Agreed. very normal thing that happens to people. But um, being forced to watch that and before you even get a chance to come down from it, you're immediately thrust into the plot, like you say, Um it's like incredible visceral as Rhaenyra is literally dripping viscera during this whole part. Um, the afterbirth is still coming as she's dressing for the queen. 
And it's tremendous. And this kind of works us into our next tracking shot because we have the tracking shot in the birthing room. And then we have the tracking shot for the walk with Lainor busting in. And he's... I mean, he's happy a child was birthed. He's like, yeah, way to go, way to go wife. Um, and he, <laughs> He's got like he's the number one foam finger like you would have in a stadium <laughs> with like Rhaenyra like, written on it. It's great because like you can tell like he has general affection for Rhaenyra. You know, he's glad that there's another son in the world. Um, and he's trying he's trying to be nice. He, like he thinks he's really trying to be nice by sharing his like pains. And, you know, I got stabbed in the shoulder once. Um, and he's like, there He's like, you can use my arm. You can lean on me. Um, but you know, not that much support, but just enough where Rhaenyra doesn't completely fall down on herself. And then the other thing I want to call out is this is uh, the directorial work of Miguel Sapochnik, who is a well-known Game of Thrones alum. I think what I flagged is in his Big Thrones episodes and specifically his battle episodes, he used tracking shots um, to really good effect. Like I can think of Jon Snow and the Fog of War on the Battle of the Bastards or up at Hardhome. Uh, He just, you know, really placed us in those with their long tracking shots. Um, So to have him open this episode with a birthing scene and then using two long tracking shots... um, to you know, show the birth and then the walk to the queen. It's really him using his own technique as a way to link the birthing bed to the battlefield, which has been one of the premises of the show from the very first episode, that this is the battlefield for the w- royal women. That's so great. That's fascinating. Because when I was first watching it, I was thinking about this feels like it's shot like a horror movie, just the kind of the intensity and the, re- the refusal to flinch away and just the kind of hypnotic quality of those takes. But you're totally right thinking about it in... The terms of the director, this does feel like one of his battle episodes, but just with the, the content flipped. And that's what I, you know, that's the kind of thing I love talking about with stories so much. Uh, like I said on my most recent Star Wars episode for patrons, which you can find over on our Patreon, my favorite working definition of great art is that it's where form meets content. It's where what it's about and how it's about it become the same thing. And it's a great example of that here, where every stylistic choice is drawing you deeper into the story and the characters. Especially in a situation where, by design, dialogue is not going to do the job on its own because Rhaenyra is, is barely able to get her words out, which doesn't stop her from cursing at exactly the right moments. But she's she's laboring hard, so to speak, and so so much of this has to be conveyed through action and just how the camera handles it. And it it, it just gets you across – it gets across what's going in Rhaenyra's head so perfectly that, she, that she's living in this bubble for a moment and then it bursts when the other person – when the, the maid comes in to summon her away to Alicent and then – and then the camera, again, there's no cuts. The camera just pans back to Rhaenyra and it just holds on her face. She asks, why? And we don't, we don't get a cutaway. We don't cut back to the maid, like, you know, making a little excuse. There is no answer coming. And there doesn't have to be because it's just written on Rhaenyra's face. She already knows. As the episode will go on to reveal, everyone knows that Rhaenyra's children aren't Lanor's. And Alicent is determined to make a whole federal case about it. And the camera just keeps holding, as you were saying, Rhaenyra shuddering through the afterbirth. And it's, again, that would be just a raw moment, kind of no matter how you shot it. But it's all the more powerful because there are no cuts. It feels more real, like you're just, you're watching this happen to a person. And I love that the cut only comes right when Lainor walks in, which says so much before a word even leaves his mouth. He's not in the same shot as Rhaenyra. He's not in the same world as her and her kid. In part because biologically, it's not his kid. He's separated from them, literally as well as figuratively. The the long takes and the carefully timed cuts show us that, which helps catch us up on their relationship. It's been so long, but this is the kind of technique that allows the show to jump that gap. Not just that you understand the relationship, but that you understand it 
quickly so then the episode can move on. Yeah, no, that's great. Using the cut as a way to show the separation that exists between Rhaenyra and Laenor, even though they seem to get along well enough and legitimately care for each other. Like I said, Laenor is supportive, but only to a degree. He's there to lend an arm while she makes the long walk, but he wasn't there in the birthing chamber, which is going to contrast later with Damon in this episode. Or he kind of lands somewhere in the middle of the Jamie and Robert spectrum that Cersei lays out, where Robert would just go away for a hunt, so I don't think he's bursting in moments after. He's probably gone for a little while. Whereas Jamie's like, which one of you is going to keep me out as he unsheaths a sword? So... And like I said, Laner is all Jess. You know, I hope it wasn't painful. I once took a spear in the shoulder. And Rhaenyra's, she's playing the role of princess. She's like, oh, that's that's nice, dear. <laughs> um, she's like humoring him well enough, even though she's obviously a little bit over his shit. Um, they bump into a Lord Caswell and his lady wife. And I love this little part, which I picked up on rewatch, is that he's going through his, you know, playbook of courtesies, you know, like, congratulations on the birth you know we all pray you know for his health and all that kind of stuff but you can see his wife just kind of staring at the baby like trying to get a good look like is this one like the other ones it's very it's just a really nice way because they kind of hold back on some of this stuff until you get situated into the political environment which i really like that's i did not catch that watching at all that what his wife was doing that's such a great catch and i love that it just it hints at the kind of just the the discomfort that's just beneath the surface here and just the inhumanity of it, like that that meat market quality where this is a newborn child, this is a new life, and we're just evaluating it, just holding up like a little color wheel next to it. Like, does it match? And that's just so, that's so brutal and so does not match up with the nice words they're all saying to each other. And that's that's the world we're living in. That first shot was about the bubble that Rhaenyra had ever so briefly with her new son. We watched it pop. And the second shot is all about reintegrating her and her son into a world that is not going to work out for them. It's this this walking tour of the new status quo. And it, shooting it all in one shot like that, you just you feel every agonizing moment and every step. It's, it's not easy on Rhaenyra, so it's not going to be easy on us. And we're going to feel this whole process. And I love what you're saying about how they're writing Lenor, which I think is really effective. That he's he's not her enemy he's not he's not a thorn in her side really but nor is he the partner she kind of needs and expects which is also how damon and lena talk to each other later in the episode so you have on one hand lena has obvious and deep affection for rhaenyra like as soon as he as soon as he realizes that she's gonna have to walk right after giving birth he immediately steps up and helps her along and at one point tries to get her to turn back we'll we'll make her come to us on the other hand he is still not taking this as seriously as he could, that he, as you say, he wasn't there during the whole birthing process. And that that extremely revealing comment about, I got shot in the shoulder once, you know, the least serious kind of wound you can have. <laughs> I get it. And it's that's a very real world thing where he's trying to empathize, right? He's trying to like draw from his own experiences to make a connection with her. But he doesn't, it's not just that he knows nothing, it's that he doesn't know that. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't realize how how out of his element he sounds. And it's the kind of situation in which he should just talk to her about how she's feeling or realize this is a situation that's so extreme that no talking is really necessary. Have that conversation later. Anything but saying, you know, I got I got flicked on the end of my nose once and that really hurt. He's trying his best, but it's it's uh, out of his understanding. And so that's why he ends up saying, I'm just glad I'm not a woman because I don't even have that's just a realm. I'm just not going to pass into it all. 
We should give Jon Snow a little bit of a break because at least he knows that he knows nothing. He's like one step above a lot of these people who don't realize they know nothing. I don't want to go Donald Rumsfeld here, but knowing how nothing you know is very important to how how much you actually know, I guess. Absolutely. The first step towards towards wisdom is admitting your own ignorance and Leonor is, is not quite there. And that also that helps us really understand their relationship and helps us understand Rhaenyra and where Rhaenyra is at after all these years that this is kind of what she's been dealing with and it's not like it's nothing even to fight against it's just this this slow simmering frustration and the 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 erosion of the the kind of the deal they made and just the respect they clearly had for each other when they were younger and even though the affection is still there the respect seems to be gone like when Elena says oh I'll help you out and she says well I should I should hope so <laughs> Like, duh. And that sets up what uh, they talk about later, where Rhaenyra is annoyed that Laenor does the bare minimum and, like, expects to get credit for it. When she's like, yeah, of course you're going to take my arm. You're not you're not just going to let me fall. Of course you are. You're not a, you don't, what do you want, a medal just for doing that? Or my favorite part of this scene, when the camera just pulls in close when she stops on the stairs and Rhaenyra just goes, Fuck. Like it's just like it's all catching up to her at once. Like like Rhaenyra just realizes, oh, this is just gonna keep being my life every time. She honestly doesn't know if she can do it, but she she can't show vulnerability. That's a, a big theme for her. It's been a big theme for her, but especially in this episode, she can't show vulnerability even to Lainor. And it's it locks her into this logic where if Alicent is gonna make this demand as unreasonable as it is, then Rhaenyra is gonna prove she can do it. She's gonna out out unreasonable Alicent. And it's just it's this performance of power that that only fits into a world of hyper macho masculine violence, that it's, it's all about these feats of strength. And whether that makes any sense at all, whether that's good for you, doesn't really matter. It just the challenge has been made. So I have to show I can do it. Yeah. And in a way, this is Rhaenyra kind of bumping against what would be expected of someone of her gender, because most women would possibly just here, can you show the baby to the queen real quick? I need to rest. But Rhaenyra's always been defiant of her role in the society. So her defiance in walking all the way to the queen. Um, and not long after, Viserys shows up with joy, not realizing or possibly just ignoring that his child shouldn't have been called to the queen in this condition, that she's standing there holding the baby just minutes after birth. Um, but he's also very happy for her. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's again, one of those things where Viserys is not a great dude, but he does have genuine affection for Rhaenyra. It's not unlike Lenor too, just what you described is like, just because affection is there and there is a warmth between them, that isn't necessarily enough for a reciprocal relation relationship. Um, one is kind of absent in his duties. Like a good father would be like, why are you sending my daughter minutes after she was giving birth to, you know, walk up these flight of stairs and down these long halls. Um, but it's, just a really great scene where Viserys has to hold the baby. And of course, he'd be great with the baby, even though he's kind of missing an arm here or hand. Uh, there's a lot going on with Viserys. Uh, he's obviously lost a lot of hair in the 10, 10 year um, time jump, as well as the pleasantness of his skin, I would also say is no longer there. Um, and he's also just like kind of playing his role in all this. He's saying the baby has his father's nose, which makes everyone smile, but maybe not the greatest smile. It's an uneasy smile from some of them. And just as uh, Joffrey and Rhaenyra are asking for the baby back, Allison just kind of scoops it out of Viserys' arms and looks at it very closely. Um, and then we get uh, you, we get the line from the book where uh, 
when uh, Allison returns the baby to uh, Sir Leonor, she says, do keep trying. Maybe one of these days, these one of these will look like you. That was brutal. Uh, you know, Emma Darcy's great. Love their performance. Already doing a great job as Rhaenyra. But Olivia Cook, if anything, might be even more impressive as our new Allison. I love that the, the second shot ends on her and it's just this superstar shot that slowly pulls in on her. It's this great like spotlight moment. And every, just every beat in this episode, every beat in this episode, she does so well. Just that the way she sells her obviously bullshit shock and dismay at, Rhaenyra, what are you doing here? I never expected, like, you know Rhaenyra pretty well, Alicent. You absolutely knew that Rhaenyra was going to show up herself. And that's the, the way she just manages, she never sounds sarcastic. She, like, the concern would sound genuine if, like Viserys, you're not listening very hard and you're not paying all that much attention. But it's it's that contempt that's just always just seething and jutting out from beneath the surface with Alicent. And uh, you can especially see it in how she uh, flares her eyes. Like, there's some great moments in this episode with Olivia Cook where she's just, like, you can feel lasers melting through the screen. <laughs> it's just, uh, and it's great because it's just, like, I have so much emotion and I don't I don't have any outlet for it. And I, you know, scratching away at my own fingernails isn't doing the trick anymore. <laughs> what am I going to do with all of this? And then, yeah, you have Viserys. I love that you pointed out he walks in right at right as the potential for conflict is avoided. <laughs> right when he doesn't have anything uncomfortable to pay attention to. And I, yeah, I love thinking about, like, how, how, did, how did he think Rhaenyra got here? What does he think she's doing here? He doesn't think about that. He walks in the room, and his daughter is there. Isn't that nice? That's the end of the thought. And that's and it's not because Viserys is, is a, a thoughtless man or it doesn't, you know, it's not, the, not even an intelligence question for, for Viserys. It's like he's made the decision to stop his thought train of thought there, always there. <laughs> Never goes further. And that just makes him the ultimate mark when he walks out. Just what a happy day this is. And yeah, he means it, but it's only because he's he's ignoring the truth. And yeah, I have that great ironic line. He has his father's nose, something Viserys is trying to will into existence so he can pretend this kid is Lanor's. And yeah, speaking of Lanor, there's a really terrific little moment here where he names Joffrey on the spot, just as Rhaenyra is trying to say, we haven't decided on a name yet. And again, it's that, that duality with Lanor's character. Like, from one angle, this is beautiful. Like, this is a romantic tribute to his his lost love. And it comes right after he had to walk past Kristen Cole, the man who beat him to death in public. And Kristen Cole just gets to stand there with his nice new haircut, working for the queen. And Lanor just has to swallow that. So it's it's cathartic that he gets to, that this is his defiance. He gets to name the kid for Joffrey. But he didn't even ask Rhaenyra about it. And this is right after we saw what Rhaenyra went through to bring this kid into the world. And then Lanor's like, yeah, he's Joffrey. Mm-hmm. As, yeah, I love Rhaenyra's line that I'm the one who bled, and he's just overruling any any will of her own. But it, but it's you know you think about it back and forth. Like, sure, it's it's not his biological kid, but I think that might be a motivation here. Like, Leonor wants to have a part of this kid's life and be a part of the family, and isn't that kind of touching and moving? But it's also an imposition. It's it's it's. I love the complexity of their relationship so far. You know, as, as he said, he's our child. Is he not? It's just kind of an open question left dangling. And then, yes, I love Allison, that line, that brutal cutting line. Maybe you'll get one who looks like you. Of course, that's that's ripped right from fire and blood. Although in the book, it's applied to uh, Luke, the second child. And I think that change is great. I think that's smart. I think having it be the last son, first of all, just helps the timeline along. We don't really have time to see Rhaenyra give birth to more than one kid. But it also just it, it, it's this great little punchline where it's like, oh, now we get why Rhaenyra was so unsurprised by this summons. 
because this is the third time, not just the second time, but the third time this has happened. This is now routine. This is now a pattern. And Allison knows exactly what she's looking for. The, the visual evidence that the seed is strong, literally in this case. Oh, yeah. And as they leave the bedchambers, uh, we can see that Rhaenyra is leaving a blood streak across the for- floor that leads uh, back to Kristen Cole, which if you think of the baby being named Joffrey and how this all came about, there is just kind of a blood, a streak of blood that leads back to Kristen Cole back at the end of last episode. But uh, next up, we get uh, Rhaenyra returning to her bedchambers with uh, her kids, uh, her older kids, uh, Jaceris and Lucerus. And they are being watched over by Commander of the City Watch, Harwin Strong, who is nothing else but Commander of the City Watch, I believe. Uh, he doesn't seem to be lovingly and fatherly to these kids, doting over them Mm-mm. and asking to see the child. Not one bit. Uh, um, but even in Lenor's pre- presence, Rhaenyra and Harwin Strong are shooting smiles back at each other. Again, you can see actual affection uh, between these characters. Like, Rhaenyra gets along with everyone kind of in her orbit that she wants in her orbit, I guess, plus or minus an Alicent. And uh, I like her little... She does a little political move in the personal realm where when Harwin asks to hold the baby, um, the way she makes that easy for Lenor to swallow is like, can Harwin hold Joffrey? So she's like, I- I'll take that name on the third kid, but you also have to like let this guy who is most definitely the father hold him for a little bit. That's a great point. I didn't pick up on that either. That's just a, this wonderful little subtle touches that give you the sense of this difficult relationship that is... Nonetheless, has real love in it and real understanding. And I think they're, you know, they're trying to pass on that kind of emotion to their kids. I didn't notice until I was rewatching the episode, Jaceris saying about the egg, I, I let Luke choose, uh, very specifically calling out his, his younger brother and, you know, letting him have his little moment. And it's so, it's so unlike what's going on with the other set of kids where Aegon, even when he's called out, just pretends he wasn't tormenting his younger brother, Aemond. And then you can just, you can see the impact a little love has had in these kids' lives, where it's, it doesn't seem to so much be the case uh, with the Hightower Targaryens. And Rhaenyra and Harwin, you do, I think, you get a unexpectedly kind of sweet kind of back and forth between them, which is good. I was expecting it to be kind of more ribald mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a little more body, given kind of Harwin's character. And I was surprised by how just like gentle, and tender it is and he's just like he's making little jokes with the baby and there's just these silent smiles going back and forth and uh, some people have said that we could you know we didn't really get to see much of their relationship which is true and uh we we just skipped over that in the time jump maybe we could have seen more of it i could see that adding to the dynamic in this you know little scene but i when i think about how it might have played out i think it might have felt redundant after the Kristen cole seduction like it would have kind of had the same beats to it and I, i think it works as as a structuring absence is something you just uh, you just is hinted at you know like in a world like this true love uh, that's something that happens off screen you don't get to actually see that and you can still feel the shape of it when you see them with the kids this lived in history between the two of them yeah i think it's a very confident move to just kind of not fast forward over all of it but just give you breadcrumbs and then you kind of see the aftermath of all of it um, it's confident storytelling, you know, a lesser show might like try to hold your hand, um, give us another episode where we can have Harwin and Rhaenyra couple, and then we can have a whole week of discourse about it. But no, this is just, <laughs> it, it, it is what happened. It is something that not only Rhaenyra and Harwin are living with, but everyone at court is already bearing this burden. And I think it's almost like we're in media res for a giant scandal already, as opposed to having to slowly 
trickle out the scandal because we already did that with Chris and Cole. Like you said, we had them do exactly. the sex scene, then we had the big reveal, and then we saw the fallout. So just doing it again would be kind of hitting the same beats where the real important part, I mean, I love Harwin Strong break bones, but relative to the importance of the dance, this is kind of the thing he does. And that's pretty much it. This scene ends with the kids picking out a dragon egg for um, the little one, which is a nice little transition to the next scene, which is the kids in the dragon pit. Um, which was all shot presumably in the volume, just based on kind of the look and feel of it. But around the torches, you can see the rafter-like seating and the columns that was visible in the throne show when they first started using the dragon pit back in season seven. Uh, but back then it had, lo- or in that show, which is in the future, it had lost its roof uh, for that. And what we're seeing here is Lucerus being tasked with bonding to Vermex, who is a raptor-like dragon in his youth. He looks very similar to, say, a season three to four uh, Game of Thrones design for a dragon. And he's kind of learning some basic words like stop or obey me, that kind of stuff, until the goat is brought out. And I'm pretty sure it was lowered in through a little hanger uh, behind an electric wired fence, right? This is Jurassic Park (laughs) we're watching, isn't it? I literally yelled out on the couch as soon as I saw that goat. I was like, what's going to happen to the goat? <laughs> exactly what the what the girl says in Jurassic Park before that, that goat is eaten alive. What's yeah, I mean, that's I think you, you can't resist a Jurassic Park reference from time to time when you're doing dragons because they basically are dinosaurs. So that was fun. Yeah, what's the matter, kid? You don't like lamb chops, I think is what the <laughs> uh, blood-sucking lawyer says to uh, the kid, but... Uh, it's it's a really interesting dynamic that they're setting up with these kids right here because for the most part, it seems like Prince Aegon gets along with the strong ki- I'm going to call them the strong kids, even though they are technically the Valerian kids, so just know that might come out. But Prince Aegon seems to get along well with them, um, but he's also just bored by all this. We get mentioned that he's already bonded with Sunfire. Um, Aemon watching uh Lucerus uh, tried to bond with Vermax. He's watching a bit sullenly. He's a bit younger, and he's a little bit annoyed that he does not yet have a dragon, um, even though everyone kind of around him does. And it's just kind of funny seeing that, because it's a big thing how these kids are going to behave as they grow up, as they age, as we get further into the dance. But here they're they're kids <laughs> um, for the most part. They're you know occasionally shitty to each other. We see them pull a prank on Amon with the pink dread, um, with a pink that or sorry a pig that is a, ordained with wings and like a dragon's tail. Um, so they're like you know kind of like I wouldn't call it bullying, but they're not being nice to him either. But this is how kids are with each other, you know. They don't always get along, especially when you have four boys you know of the same age or in the same kind of age range um they're gonna you know pick a favorite and there's gonna be a little hierarchy that develops but um i really just like the dynamic that they're setting up with the kids and with aemon kind of being singled out as the lowest on the totem pole after he gets teased with the pink dread he decides to descend further into the dragon pit um it almost feels like he's descending into the underworld or like you're playing diablo where Mm -hmm. you're going down to through the various stages of hell Um, And there's a very dreamlike element to this. There's like a soft focus during a cut where he kind of comes back into focus. And you assume, you know, this is all happening underground, but it's just surreal enough where it's like, what is actually happening? And off in the distance, we see a dragon who spies Aemond and breathes fire. It's a dragon that has a very... Uh, Game of Thrones dragon look like it looks like one of Daenerys's dragons so I don't think it's one of the main dragons we've seen or heard talked about really so far in this episode but um, it's great it's 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 the dragon tamer right <laughs> exactly I'm so happy I got my Quentin adaptation after all 
But uh, no, I love what you were saying about how it's it's filmed like he's slipping into a nightmare. Like the sound just kind of fades out. And it seems like he just walks away from them. And it's just, it's like Alice slipping into Wonderland where it doesn't, it, it starts becoming surreal. And it's, it's like, it's not even a, a physical space anymore. It's, it's an internal one. Like he's just wandering his own thoughts and he's seeing this dragon inside himself. That's, that's not fully developed yet, but it's waiting to come out if you know where Aemond is headed. And I think Aemond in the text is, um, effective in terms of being a, a blunt object for for clearing other pieces off the map but we never really get much of a sense of him outside the one intimate horrible moment where they take his eye out and i think it's a good call what they did with him here to write him as, as the sullen outcast and it, yeah you get the kind of hilarious in a sad way thing where this is the closest Aegon comes to getting along uh, with Rhaenyra's kids, is only by by tormenting Aemond. And that sets him up as as the exile of the group, as the other in every sense of the word. And it, it's good because it, it makes you sympathize with him that, you know, it's not his fault he doesn't have a dragon yet and he's just feeling this desperation and this, this loneliness. But I think in that kind of nightmarish quality to his descent into the pit, I think they're already setting up that his response to that is going to be becoming the most ruthless and violent member of Team Green. It makes me think of, of Tyrion and how he said, you know, I will, I will be the monster you think I am. That moment when you flip and stop trying to belong and get along with people and just go, fine, fine. If you think of me as your, as your enemy, then I'm, that's what I'm going to be. Or the way he says to his mother later that they were all laughing at me, that that's what really stung. That has such strong echoes with the main series of, you know, that's Theon thinks it's better to be feared than laughed at. And Stannis is is going all in on never being mocked or belittled again, the way both both Robert and Renly did. And it's it's uh, it's uh, something I think George understands intimately, maybe from his own life, maybe from people he's known. That kind of that brittle quality that sets in after just years of being defensive, and how you it's it's a hollowing out process where you get to a point where the only thing that's going to make you happy is is shutting those guys up. And it's sad because you weren't the one to put you in that position. But it's, you know, it's not turning you, turning you into a, a flawless angel who will redeem their sins. It's just, it's just making you mad, very mad over a long period of time. And Amon, we're going to see the effects of that. Yeah, wow. Now I'm going to get emotional over Samuel Tarley for not turning out like that because he had every right to become a shitty little person. But Exactly. But he stuck to, you know, what does John say about saying he has a queer sort of courage? Because he does not pretend to be anything other than who he is. And while what other people do and say about him hurts him a lot, he doesn't he doesn't care in the sense that he doesn't change what he loves or what he wants or what he cares about. And other characters kind of allow themselves to be changed into like a, a mirror image of the people who are tormenting them, mm-hmm. which is what happens with Theon and kind of uh, Stannis is like, it's not really bullying anymore because he's too old for that <laughs> shit. But the same kind of thing where he's like, I'm going to I'm gonna become, he, you know, he wants to fight the, the others but functionally becomes the Night King. And Aemond, like even in his name, is just this distorted mirror of Daemon. So he's just going to become this mirror image of the system that is right now uh, kicking him down. Yeah, not to digress too much, but that's also John Connington. He was in yes. one way kind of left out of Westeros and exile and he died a drunk and he just thinks back, I should have been more like Tywin Lannister. I should have done more war crimes. Maybe that would have been the solution. Because that's what the winners look like. <laughs> and in this kind of world, you either choose to be like them or you have to accept not being a winner by their standards, which is uh, what someone like Sam does. 
Uh, speaking of winners, I want to talk about my winner, and that is yes. Helena Targaryen and Absolutely. her bug collection. I just love the little flourish of having her be a bug girl. Um, she's very keenly observing the millipede or caterpillar or whatever it is that's crawling all over her hand. Um, just a very bold, bold little kid in her own little way, which I really appreciate. And this this scene is dense because what's the core action of this is Allison's kind of talking with Helena, but then da- uh, Aemond is brought back, and you know he was caught wandering in the dragon pits again. But while Allison is dressing down, um, Aemond, uh, we hear Helena speaking in the backgrounds, and she's saying all sorts of little things um, like he will need to lose an eye while uh, Allison is talking to Aemond about the dragon, um, how it has eyes but it cannot see, which. Could refer to any sort of green seeing, prophecy, third eye crow, sorry, <laughs> three eyed crow, or anything like that. There's a reference to he will rule, but he has no legs, which could be a reference to Bran. So, this is one of the scenes that had everyone kind of going buck wild because Helena, dreamer Targaryen, it seemed <laughs> more possible than you know, I think is what the link <laughs> should say online. Just to clarify some of those prophetic lines that. Helena says, it says, it has eyes, but it cannot see, which I think is very specifically regarding Viserys. Um, this uh-huh. is something that Allison will tell us, like, you do not see what I have plainly told you and what is plainly before your eyes. Um, and then when Allison's saying, you'll have a dragon one day, Helena says, he'll have to close an eye, which refers to the accident he's going to have. Um, but following the scene, Allison goes to Viserys to complain about the kids picking on Aemond. Um, and Allison is kind of calling them savages. And she's like, once again, trying to relitigate the parentage of Rhaenyra's children. Apparently, this has come up before. Um, and Viserys is like, we will not speak of it. Um, I don't want to give him too much credit, but it reminds me very much of Ned Stark and Catelyn regarding Jon's parentage. Like, anytime it's brought up, he's there to like snuff it out right away. And Allison saying all sorts of stuff like it's a wonder their eggs haven't even hatched, which had me pulling out my hair because regardless who the father is, they're as much Targaryens as Allison's kids are. So I don't know what she's getting at with the egg hatching quote. I mean, I get what she's getting at, but come on. Come on, man. Yeah, I think it's it says so much that Allison gets all annoyed about the the dragons recognizing Rhaenyra's children. Like she she wants the dragons to take her side. Because she's talked herself into believing that Rhaenyra's children are inherently unworthy by virtue of their bastardy. So if the dragons refused them, that would be really helpful. It would be a politically potent symbol. It would be like she, she's been backed up by the universe, that they're, they're metaphysically incorrect. It's like when, when the Iron Throne cuts someone and like, you know, that's, that's, that's the voice of the gods right there. That's the will of the gods. That's, that's not just about kings. That's the divine is speaking to us. And you can, you can see that when she says to Helena, some things just are. Like, that's how she wants it to be for her and her family, that we are, we're not just going to win, but that we're supposed to win. That, that's really important to her. So it really sucks that the dragons like Rhaenyra's boys just fine. They don't care about marriage vows. They care about fire and blood. And there's an interesting kind of cultural subtext to that, where it's like the dragons are specifically rejecting the faith of the seven, the rituals and the protocols and the, the mar- you know, getting married in a sept and having the seven watch over you because, you know, they care about Valyrian blood magic, which was not necessarily about, you know, the sanctity of marriage vows. So when Alicent later snaps at Laris about no one taking her side, it's not just frustration with her husband, although that's definitely a big part <laughs> of it. It's fear of what dragons, it's fear of what the dragons might mean. 
And that adds an extra layer to Aemon having these problems with dragons that she, she, she must worry her that, oh, the dragons like the strong boys just fine, but not my one, one of my golden haired Targaryen sons. And uh, then, yeah, Viserys walks in and they're they're also doing still good work with him. He's, you know, obviously receding in terms of screen time compared to the first couple episodes, but he's still a complex character. He's when when they're talking about uh, what happened with the kids, he is he he immediately realizes uh, this was Egon's idea, wasn't it? Which is something that Alicent at that point is studiously ignoring and just pretending it was all the strong boys idea. But also, he doesn't really seem to care about intervening on Eamon's behalf. Like, when the, when that little conversation starts, he's like, well, why did he fall for it? Like, that's really the takeaway. Like, that Eamon didn't see the pig coming. That's really what's important here. Viserys will just tap the sign. No concrete decisions allowed. I feel like he's doing Jessica Walter's bit from Arrested Development, where it's like, I love all my children equally. And then they cut to Viserys later. I don't care for Eamon. Uh, it's just... Uh, he just does not seem interested, not worth getting up and not worth uh, having to get away from his model, Valeria, who a sculptor named Eddard is working on that he has to dismiss before they get into actually discussing what Allison wants to discuss. And I also like that Viserys once again has to plead to Allison, speak plainly, like, what exactly are you saying here? Um, which is very similar to the role Otto was playing just a couple episodes ago. So you see that both of them kind of have the same roundabout ways of talking about neither of them have are like able to be direct. And we've already seen the consequences of that with, say, Kristen Cole confessing last week, um, which is, I think is a very interesting thing. And like I said, uh, Allison is just hopping mad at this because one child that can be a mistake like that can be you know you had a moment of weakness that happened but then the rest of the kids are good and strong true born you know sons (laughs) of the princess but three three is an insult it's an insult to you it's an insult to the throne but Viserys again just kind of doesn't care and I like that he goes into dad metaphor mode again he doesn't quite have the dagger roasting in an open fire like last time but all of a sudden he's Starts talking about breeding horses, essentially, or a stallion that got away and it had a foal that was neither white or had a beautiful coat. And Allison just kind of looking at him like, come on. Uh, not the horse story again. I think back to uh, Cersei, like kind of berating Tywin's like, actually, it's the same tedious conversation with little twists on it that you always lectured us with. And you can tell at this point, she's probably heard a million of these metaphors. Like, no, we're not talking about horses. We're talking about Rhaenyra and her children. Catch up. Yeah, I've got an interesting story. Well, it's not so much interesting as it is long. (laughs) And once again, as usual with Viserys, he's got half a point. Like, yeah, nature is a mysterious thing. And, you know, the Westeros, you don't live in a universe with Punnett squares. They don't necessarily know how to how to work genetics. Uh, Plausible that Viserys thinks he can he can tell himself that and get away with it. But he's also just as Allison says, after three, you are clearly very loudly lying to yourself. And I love that she points out his horse metaphor doesn't actually work on its own terms because he didn't bear witness to the equine baby making in question. No more than we saw Rhaenyra and Harwin get it on. It's all built out of implications and euphemisms. As you said, when, when Otto in previous episodes was bringing the word of Rhaenyra and Damon fucking and then dealing with the, the aftermath of that. And it's all about like the parts of ourselves that are emotional or passionate or vulnerable we have we have to hide all that away we have to hide ourselves away because to be in power we have to be the the illusion of perfect beings 
And following this scene, Kristen wants, walks Allison back to her chambers. And Kristen is basically a full-on sounding board at this point, just kind of telling Allison what she wants to hear or what she'd prefer to hear. Um, not unlike Laris, but he, Laris seems to be doing it for some kind of gain or possibly to get you know, one thing over on Allison, whereas Kristen, it's a combination of his loyalty to Allison and maybe his, you know, feelings of betrayal by Rhaenyra or not feeling great about all that stuff. And to the point where he actually call, you know, calls her a spoiled cunt and then he has to like stop and like, that was unbecoming of me. And it's actually kind of a fascinating turn for him is like, is this because it, you know, disobeys his perception of what a true knight should be saying about stuff? Is it just because he felt he went too far? And, you know, Allison's a very by-the-book person. Maybe she doesn't want to hear that kind of stuff. Um, it's a great little character moment from Kristen, who doesn't have a whole ton in this episode. But um, I think that was very telling about his relationship with Allison at this point. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I, I love this little scene. I love, yeah, Cook is just tearing into the line deliveries. Like, I love when she said, everyone is dreaming the same woolly dream. I always, you know, I love when a character gets hits an adjective especially hard just to show how angry they are. The same woolly dream, and you you get where she's coming from in terms of of how obvious Rhaenyra is being. Like oh, what Tyrion thinks to himself, if she'd had even one of Robert's kids, that would have been enough. But then she wouldn't have been Cersei. Like there is like Rhaenyra is exercising her independence, but she's also making a point that, yeah, sure, I'm creating problems for you other people and I don't give a shit. And Alicent is picking up on that deliberate message being sent. And Kristen Cole, meanwhile, of course, is in he's in pure crony mode at this point. After 10 years of this, he's gotten very good at kissing her green ass at every turn. But but it's interesting that he takes a step too far in this scene. You get the sense this maybe hasn't happened before. And once again, it's all about language, what what it means to say something politely versus, we'll, we'll say impolitely. Because first, Kristen says, he doesn't immediately uh, jump to the coarse, vulgar words. He, the first thing he says about Rhaenyra is, is, it's something like she's a spider sucking someone dry. And that's, you know, that's very poetic. That's high-minded. It, it flatters the intellect of the person listening. You'll understand what I'm saying if I, if I put it this way. But then he calls Rhaenyra a spoiled cunt. And that's no, that breaks the rules. That's too blunt. That's too obviously hateful and cruel and sexist. And there's just, there's no way for Allison to hear that and still feel like she's on the right side. And that's interesting because, you know, spider sucking people dry is still an insult. It's kind of still a gendered insult. It's, it's not a nice thing to say about someone, but it's euphemistic and it's impersonal. And I think Alicent is okay with the idea that she might have to go to war against a spider, but not against a spoiled cunt. Because that's something that someone might be calling Alicent. Maybe she's wondering, oh, what does Kristen say about me when I'm not in the room? What do other people say about me? They might be calling me that. I don't... She's doing every, everything she can to avoid the thought of, I'm fighting someone like me. Because mm -hmm. that's going to make it really hard for her to do it. And that's why Alicent feels the need to say something just transparently ridiculous at the end of this scene that she thinks honor and decency will prevail in the end which you know not even ned stark actually said that <laughs> and like come on even by allison's own terms she doesn't act that way there's nothing honorable or decent about ordering an immediate newborn inspection which is about as super villainy as you're gonna get but allison needs to keep telling herself that she's on the right side of history and the gods have her back Otherwise, she has to face the reality that her life has become about thwarting a person she used to love, which is a really painful thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't... 
the word like a spoiled brat basically exists for the firstborn daughter of Lord Hightower who marries the king at age 14 and becomes the most powerful woman or ostensibly the most powerful woman in the realm. So um, it is definitely very much a reflection back at her, which I love. Um, and then my HBO kind of did something weird. It randomly started playing an episode of Secession where Roman Roy was beating off on like the top floor of the Waystar Roycoy building. How'd that get in there? Yeah, it was weird. But no, actually, I love this. Uh, Allison just walks in on Aegon, who is, you know, in a window, just like, you know, probably two feet from falling to his death, like we saw Tommen do a couple, a couple of years ago. And he's just going at it with his own hog. Uh, he's uh, having his own little pink dread at the moment as uh, he's just masturbating and looking at the city. Like It's like the perverse, like, all that the light touches will be your kingdom one day. And then he's jacking <laughs> off to that fact, basically. All that the cum touches, Egon. Oh. <laughs> um, and I may... Maybe that's not even the most upsetting part about all this. I think what's upsetting is that Allison walks in, sees that not only is her son beating off, but her son is beating off while standing on a ledge naked looking down at the city. Like, she's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, get here. I need to talk to you. Um, And she's like literally going to talk to him about like, you have to be a king now. Um, So, you know, maybe she's like, well, kings can masturbate looking down from their high towers and stuff. So that all makes sense. But I think what Allison's really upset about is the fact that Aegon is getting in on the teasing of Amond. Um, Basically, we're in a situation is like, don't fight with the family in public. You know, we have to create this uh, show of solidarity, solidarity, the show of strength that we're all one unit on this side on Team Green. Where Aegon, at least at this point, does not really even appear to have concerns about taking the Iron Throne. Like, Allison basically shocks him and is like, oh, Princess Rhaenyra is going to be the throne. And she just had a son and he, uh, he'll be, you know, king after that. Like, Aegon isn't thinking about the throne right now. But Allison is actively like, no, you are the challenge. You will be our king. She's kind of poisoning him. Whereas this kid who seems kind of fucked up and weird anyways, but doesn't seem like a bad kid as of right now, or at least not someone who is like, he is not Joffrey Baratheon at this point in his life. He is very much just kind of a little bit of a shitty kid, but also someone who we've seen be kind of kind to some of the kids around him. So who's to say? Um, and this is us seeing one generation poison the next with their own trauma. It's something we talk a little bit about or a lot about in the main series about how the people of Robert Rebellion's generation have all this unprocessed trauma, all these scars they're still carrying. And that in turn is the seeds for war for the next generation, sometimes openly inflicted on those children. And here we're seeing everything that's happened with Allison kind of boil over and now be pushed onto the next generation. So where this episode kind of starts with the kids being all nice and friendly with each other, it's going to end with them fighting. And it's very much because of the adults in the room. I, I do love that Allison doesn't even react when she walks in and sees Egon in the window jerking off. It, it reminds me of when Catelyn returns to River Run in Clash of Kings and she hears about Jamie trying to escape and she asks Ed, Ed Muir where he was and he starts blushing and he says, well, I was, I was returning, uh, across the river from, uh, and she just, okay, you were whoring or wenching, get on with the tail. Like that big sister. I get it. You're a horny little pervert. Whatever. <laughs> get to the useful information, please. And that's what Allison, uh, is doing here. And, uh, yeah, I love, uh, what, I love what they're doing with Egon the second so far that he's just, he's just head empty, dick in the wind, living his best life. And yeah, I like how how they're positioning him as just 
how he behaves just depends on the last person he talked to, it seems like. He's just kind of he's just kind of drifting along and he can be influenced in any one direction or the other, but he doesn't really have any instincts or ambitions of his own. So it can it can go either way. Like you know, Egon can be unthinkingly cruel. And he'd like he when Alicent calls him out on it, he just seems surprised. Like Eamon's a twat. He says, you know, he he exists for me to make fun of him. What's the problem? On the other hand, yeah, it, he doesn't he genuinely does not care about the Iron Throne and seems surprised at the idea that he would care about the Iron Throne. Like it's that's not for me. It's we already saw that uh, in Fire and Blood or you know, one of the possibilities offered up in Fire and Blood is that when Alicent first came to him with the idea of claiming the throne, Aegon was against it and said, "No, that's that's Rhaenyra's birthright. There's something unethical or just kind of awful about that, especially since we're family members to betray her like that. Like he is he is going to have to be talked into this." And we see here that Alicent has bought into her father's logic that we we have to move against Rhaenyra because she is inevitably going to move against us. But we're also seeing it become this self-fulfilling prophecy that, yeah, you treat Rhaenyra like your enemy and she's going to be. And again, we're seeing great acting from Olivia Cook. Like when she when she grabs his face, you flinch. You just because the scene has been kind of funny up to that point. And then suddenly it becomes much more serious. Oh, yeah. Olivia Cook just like yelling into Aegon's face and holding him by the neck or the scruff of his hair. It's it's incredible. It's powerful. I I would be like, OK, yes, I am taking the Iron Throne. Yes, mom, like, whatever you say, because she is just imperious and demanding. And I, I buy it. I think it's an incredible performance. So next up, we cross the narrow sea over to Pentos, where we see a little freestyle dragon riding with Daemon Targaryen and Lena, now his wife, who is being played by Nana Blondell. And we get to see uh, Daemon riding first. He's on Caraxes, which is a dragon we've seen quite a few times already in this show. And then all of a sudden, a bigger, older dragon just flies above him, almost dwarfs uh, him on Caraxes. And we look up and we see that it's Lena riding Vagar, um, who looks like an old dragon, you know, which is kind of great. You can see um, just like a little more crackliness in his skin. It's not as like clean or sheen as the other dragons are so far. He's got a grayer tone. Um, he's got all sorts of ropes lashed onto his back, which I couldn't quite make out what they were, but I like to think that because he's so big, you need a lot of ropes to climb up onto him, or even some of those are old riders of his, and this is like the fifth generation of saddles that he's had to bear. Um, it's just a great, great introduction for Vagar. Um, it's basically a Pintoshi air and water show that's being put on for them as we see, um, what's it called, the people gathering around on the ground to uh, celebrate them. So this sets up a dinner scene where um, some Lord of Pentos, I don't know if we got a specifics in terms of who this guy is, but he just seems like one of the guys, one of the magisters, let's say. And he's raising a toast to Aegon the Conqueror. And this is kind of a way that he's trying to make a political pact with Daemon Targaryen. He's basically saying, we can offer you safe sanctuary and a place to live here in Pentos in exchange for us being able to call you and your dragons into battle against the Triarchy, who seem to have recently allied with Corrin Martell of Dorne, which is a deal that Lena wants to like outright refuse right away, but Damon's like, let's think about this or whatever, um, because Damon, Damon comes off in this episode a little bit as a drift, um, like he, like I don't think he's in a bad place, and we see that he's loving with uh, Lena and at least one of their kids, um, 
and even he's sometimes a little bit distanced, but you can see like he's kind to his wife. He like takes out a pillow when she wants to sit down next to him. Um, he smiles with her. He talks to uh, his daughters lovingly, but still he feels a little bit adrift in the world. Like he's not living up to his potential that maybe he should be elsewhere. Um, and Lena, for her part, also has some of the same thoughts, but just in a different way, in a different direction. She wants to stop being adrift. She wants to go back home and be with Driftmark and see her brother and see her parents, presumably. She wants to be a dragon rider. She doesn't want to die weekly in the bed of a P- Pintoshi magistrate. Yeah, even the the name of the, the island Driftmark, if you think about it, kind of gets that across. Like in the middle of the drift, here is our mark. Here's the spot. As the the waves are constantly moving, but here's a, a still place, a home that we can have, and that's that's something she wants back. And like I said earlier, I think it was fine that we didn't get to see Rhaenyra and Harwin's relationship bloom. I maybe I'll feel differently if I come back to this later. I do think we missed out on something with Damon and Lena because he's clearly he's clearly gone through some changes, and I think the character would have been enriched by seeing some of that. Like I would like to see even just a scene or two about how. Lena convinced him to comparatively settle down. Like, I feel that's a bigger change than anything Rhaenyra went through, I think. And you get enough of a sense of what the dynamics have been like in the years since. This is one where I I think they might, they might be skipping over some of the dramatic work here. But I think, I do think we get a sense of their relationship uh, purely visually through how they fly together, that just the, the joy of it, you know, it reminds me in a very different way of how Rhaenyra felt for a second there at the start of the episode with Joffrey. When she was just smiling and kissing his head. And for a moment, it's like the rest of the world falls away. And you're just with the person you love. And yeah, you have Damon and Lena feeling that here. And I really love the the score for that little scene when they're flying over Pentos. It's got these these punchy, rousing horns. Which is a lot different from everything else in the show so far. And it really, really captured me. I'm glad that we're proceeding at least somewhat with the whole triarchy, Essos world building. It keeps your options open and prevents the the first couple episodes from just seeming like a detour if you keep this stuff at least somewhat important. And looking at the source material, all this stuff does pay off in a number of ways for how the war turns out and what happens to uh, Damon and Rhaenyra's children. And I'm also glad that Lena is given, like, a specific reason to go home. Like, again, I can imagine a lesser version of this episode where she's just framed as Damon's nagging wife who wants him to stop being awesome but instead she's like you know being being an awesome cool outcast just isn't enough in the long run like I want to be part of something I want to like the bloodline like we see in the opening credits I want to feel a part of something that existed before me and will exist after me instead of just yeah she says you know we're just we're kind of puppets at this point we're just putting on shows for these people but what she wants is is linked to family but it's also linked to war that she says she she wants a dragon rider's death and not just like passing away in your bed, you know, fat and drunk like many of the Pintoshi people they're hanging out with are going to do. Because it's like when you're uprooted from what gives your life meaning, this this kind of life, it's not it's not really peaceful. It's not really satisfying. It's alienating to her. It doesn't feel real. Yeah, no, that's a great observation because her brother Lenor says something similar to Rhaenyra later in the episode where he's like, oh, there's war on the Stepstones. I might actually be able to do something again. Um, Granted, we'll get to that conversation, but you can see the same sentiment running through both these siblings. And I I can't disagree with you. I think of all the things that I would have perhaps like to see more more of from this episode i think lena definitely i think part of it is because uh nana blondell comes in with such stage presence right away and Mm -hmm. the fact that 
I wouldn't say she's like corralled Damon Targaryen, but Damon was a loose cannon to see him have this kind of home life. That's like you say, that's a bigger shift in character than I think any other characters that we had established prior to these time jumps and seeing what's happening afterwards. Um, I, I'm glad that they have the scene last episode at the feast. So at least it's mm-hmm. not completely out of nowhere, but um like you say, it's a pretty radical shift for Damon, even if we expect him to eventually come back to some of his more gnarly doings. Of course. Um, it is, feels like kind of an oasis for his character, and it would have been nice to kind of, you know, drink a little water at the o- oasis while we had the time. That's a good way of putting it. And I think even as I say that, I don't know what I would cut to make room. You know what I mean? Because you do need everything else in there. Uh, it, I just, I do worry it will feel like Damon off screen had a different life and now he's going back to the Damon we knew. So it might just, it might feel like a kind of a roundabout in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a good problem to have when you create characters and they get, you know, an episode and then they're like, Oh, I just wanted a lot more of them. Uh, But it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, that happens, especially in this universe. But um, I think Lena and uh, the performance by Blondell is one of the best like single episode castings that they've done so far in the entire Westeros universe. Agreed. So next we cut to the scene where a bunch of uh, dads who have kids on the peewee softball team uh, (laughs) get drunk at games and argue at each other and throw beer bottles at each other. Yes, we get the courtyard training scene where we get to watch Kristen Cole and Harwin Strong supervise the martial training of the children of Alicent and Rhaenyra. Um, already, a couple things become readily apparent. Uh, Aegon ha- appears to have some skill with the blade. He's the oldest of the children, but he's kind of dancing around a whatever mannequin thing and like hitting it. And he seems to have a little bit of grace to him. Uh, Kristen Cole calls him my Lord of Straw, which is kind of a funny nickname to give the kid. Um, and while, while this is happening, we see Viserys and Lionel watching and Viserys is all about this. He's like, yeah, boys that train together and fight together, this will be good for them. They'll be brothers in arms, which is kind of reminding me of the logic that Ned had when he was trying to decide what kids to bring to King's Landing. And he's like, oh, we should bring Bran down because, you know, he's quick and easy to smile and he can bridge the gap. If he's in the courtyard with Tommen and Joffrey, then maybe we'll all be friends. And then all this enmity between House Lannister and Stark will... Uh, you know, kind of fade into the distance. So um, good, good plan, but I don't think it's working. <laughs> yeah, this is this is some quietly heartbreaking shit that Viserys still thinks he can make this work through sheer force of will. And that specifically he thinks he can make it work within the confines of martial masculinity. He doesn't get that the way Kristen is doing this is fostering competition more than it is community. I mean, they are, you know, they're preparing for war here, not peace. So there's that inherent tension between we'll make them get along by having them beat the shit out of each other. Like, I can see how you could theoretically make that work, but I feel like the, the potential for taking it too far is just always there. And I was trying to think, like, what in what in universe is a good example of this working? When does when do young men thrown into a violent situation uh, form bonds that they might not have otherwise? And I was thinking, oh, th- that happened in the War of the Nine Penny Kings, which is where you have folks like Hoster Tully and uh, Ricard Stark and John Aaron, Stefan Baratheon becoming friends. And then what did they do with that friendship? Oh, yeah, they got together for the Southron Ambitions Coalition and took down Viserys Targaryen's family. Like, that's isn't that funny? Like, <laughs> the one time this actually worked, it was just to get rid of all you guys and, and start a whole new monarchy. That's that's just hysterical to me. But, yeah, I think the, the sports dad uh, comparison is absolutely accurate because that is often the logic there. Like, we're going to have them fight you know, in a, in a con, in a hopefully safe context. And that'll, 
they'll they'll become friends, they'll become closer as a result of that. And I think that is often true, but what we're seeing in a scene like this is questioning what they might be picking up along the way. We also get to see Aegon checking out the handmaids as they walk by. It's very subtle, but you see him giving them the eye, which um, Aegon's a little bit of a lecher, as we have uh, already seen with his uh, masturbation shenanigans. So um, him just spying all the women around him. So we're seeing a fairly complicated portrait of Aegon early on, um, because all while this is happening, he's also giving the strong boys little pats on the back and shooting them smiles. Like, I think he generally has a friendship with them, as, at least so far until the adults interject. Um, because Kristen Cole sees that things are getting a little too chummy around here, decides, okay, let's let's kind of kick this up a notch. So he likes has the two uh, children of Allison kind of take him on one at a time, and he basically schools them, like one hand behind his back and smacking them on the butt. And this is where Harwin Strong tries to weasel and is like, hey, you might as well, you know, include these children as well, the younger children. Um, and Kristen's like, fine, let's put Jaceris against... Uh, Aegon and let's have them fight and we kind of see Kristen turning into Alistair Thorne here like he uh-huh. grabs Jaceris by the breastplate and throws him to one side of the courtyard and is like you two fight and then the way that he's instructing uh, Aegon to press the advantage on Jaceris when they're dueling how to kick him and then once he's down he's like keep hitting him which is literally what Alistair Thorne orders for Samuel Tarly yeah it's again we see with Aegon this this He's like, his default is just being kind of chill. And he's, he only gets aggressive when someone tells him to, when someone gives him a reason to. And we see that right away that that's Kristen Cole's role in the scene. He has that quick line in passing, which I think sums up so much of what he's trying to impress upon these boys, which he says, he says something like, it's, if you stay upright, you'll get knocked down. Or like, yeah, if you stay upright, it's easier to knock you down. Something like that. And that you see what the message he's trying to send there is, is don't try to be a good guy. Don't don't try to live up to your values because then you're just you're just making yourself a target. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're going to have to fight dirty to win, which is what Alicent earlier when she was talking to Kristen Cole was trying to tell herself that didn't necessarily have to be the case. There was an honorable, decent ending to this. I think Kristen already thinks otherwise. It's also very revealing when right before uh, Jaceris and Egon fight, we see Kristen whispering in Egon's ear. And I don't think we hear what he says. But it's only then that Aegon gets angry and just shouts, you, like a villain, <laughs> at Jaceris. And I think, you know, we can infer that Kristen was whispering something to prick Aegon's pride. Maybe something about the Iron Throne. Maybe something about the parentage of the boys. Probably not directly saying anything, but just enough to get him to act how he wanted. Like Littlefinger uh, probably had a role in talking Joffrey into executing Ned just by pricking his pride. And again, it's just, it's all in whoever is Aegon's talking to. He just is, is a vessel for them. Like, you know, mom couldn't make him mad because he's got this kind of uh, squirrely, obsequious relationship to his mom that I think a lot of uh, a lot of sons do, a lot of older sons do, where it's like, oh, mom's here. I got to, you know, shrink into my turtle shell and just try not to get in trouble. This guy, Kristen Cole, a knight, Aegon's mentor in violence, he can get Aegon's blood up. And when Aegon is fighting Jaceris, Kristen is that key line of, of, of don't let him get up. Don't let him get up. Show no mercy. And that's really where the line gets crossed because at that point, you're not teaching him how to fight anymore you're teaching him how to torment people you're teaching him how to how to be overly aggressive and develop a reputation for cruelty which is that's that's not master at arms anymore yeah like uh harwin strong is literally like is this what you teach cole um it's like you're just teaching him to be a bully you're not teaching him to be a soldier or a good swordsman anymore you've just kind of lost the thread and are turning this into a little bit of a public display 
which is, you know, kind of what escalates things. And we get to literally Harwin deciding to do to Kristen Cole's face what Kristen Cole did to Joffrey Lawnmouth, even though uh, Harwin Strong has enough sense not to go all the way with it and just kind of punch him. And I love this bit where because Cole instigates uh, Harwin into this uh, fist fight by basically saying those, you know, you would only care about the training of these kids if they were relations to you. And he, you know, works up the family train of relations till he finally says sons. And then Harwin starts just wailing on him. And then Kristen Cole, after taking the beatings, like, yeah, thought it was like that. Like, as if somehow he's vindicated because he got his ass beat by Harwin Strong. Like, oh, yeah, you're you're just mad. That's why. Yeah, I love that when Harwin snaps on Kristen, it's the same thing that Kristen was telling Aegon, don't let him get up, just like he was telling the kid, and, and Harwin doesn't let Kristen up. And it's this this mutual escalation where clearly, I mean, this is supposition, but I think Kristen would have been less hard on the strong boys if Harwin wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I think he was in part showing off for the boys' father, see, I can do this, and you can't even acknowledge them, and I get to smack him around. And... The message that Kristen keeps hammering home is that affection is weakness. It's the same message that Lara spells out at the end of the episode, that you can't you can't show mercy and you can't uh, have pity for someone who's defenseless. You gotta, you gotta purge those feelings. And as much as we're on Harwin's side in this situation because he's looking after his boys and Kristen is just being the worst, like there is a reason Kristen is smiling uh, through his blood and broken teeth after that encounter is done because he got what he wanted out of it which is Harwin doing this specifically in public and, you know, uh, letting the gossip train uh, run wild. And what a contrast that is to what Kristen did. Yeah, at the end of the last episode, he got away with killing Joffrey because it wasn't, that wasn't tied to this politically damaging narrative. And what Harwin just did is, it's the, you know, the Varus uh, shadow on a wall riddle where what matters is what people believe. And there was already this pre-existing narrative that those are Harwin's sons. And now, as Kristen pointed out, now you're acting like they're your sons. You're not just pummeling a random asshole, which is how he tries to explain it to his dad. No, you look like you're protecting your bastard children. Yeah, you can very much see why Cersei told Jamie to not be involved in the yep. raising of the children because people will talk. Um, and then when those things become public for all to see, especially in a courtyard of the Red Keep, um, how many people are going to be talking about, oh, Kristen Cole said the Rhaenyra's kids were strongs, and then all of a sudden Harwin started beating up on him. Like, it's in a way proving the truth. And that leads us into the next scene where... Rhaenyra is brought news that there was an incident in the yard and she seemingly steps through the secret passage that Damon alerted to her a couple episodes back and she walks up a staircase and is able to eavesdrop on Lionel uh, Father Strong dressing down Harwin after this incident and this is a great little moment for Gavin Spokes because he's the actor who plays Lionel and he's been the most even keel of the main cast so far through let's say the first five to six episodes he's always giving shrewd advice he's never raising his voice everything's kind of even demeanor and here he just gets to yell and emote and just really lay into uh Uh, what's it called his son harwin and he said like i've had your back it's like we've known this is going on for a while but honor demands that i i have to put a stop to this because this could ruin this could lead to the ruin of our house you know this could lead to the fall of our entire everything we built here and i like harwin's line in response is like you have your honor and i have mine because harwin of his own accord has a certain bond with these kids they 
he's he's their father and his honor demands that he protects them. Um, It's very similar to how J.R. Mormont, uh, what's it called, talks about honor with Jon Snow. It's just, um, you know, they have honor, your friends have honor, you have honor, and those lead to different things and leads to uh, what's called purposes being at cross sometimes. And speaking of the the Night's Watch characters in the main series, uh, Gavin Spokes in the as you're saying, he does great yelling work in this scene, so unexpected for him. But in the quieter moments when he just says, people have eyes, boy. That re- he reminds me of Jonathan Bradley as Sam. There's something kind of haunted and vulnerable and anxious about his face. Like he's he's risen so high and now he's, he's trembling on the edge and he feels like he's about to fall. And as he says, it's the only reason you're not already dead is because the king refuses to be honest with himself. Only, only his affection for his daughter is saving your life. And Harwin has that great moment where he's just like, well, I, why can't you do that for me? If the king looks the other way out of love, why can't you do that for me? And I think Lionel is right when he says, yeah, I have, I've done that for years. And we're, but we're reaching the tipping point. We're reaching the crisis where we're going to have to choose. And yeah, as Harwin says, they have just they've chosen different paths and different ways of of looking at the world and different things are important to them. So the next scene, we return back to Rhaenyra, who's kind of sitting with all this. And one of her handmaids has to give her a towel that she has to slip into her dress because um, her nipples are chafing or from all the, you know, breastfeeding or milking. Um, I am not going to pretend to be an expert on this, so I'm just going to stop talking about it there. But then off screen, we get our first bars of the Bear and the Maiden Fair for the series <laughs> as we hear Lenor and Carl barge in through the big doors. And I have to give a hat tip to my friend Jess, who referred to them as Lenny and Carl, which is like Lenny and Carl <laughs> from The Simpsons. And I don't think I'm ever going to be able to not think of that now when I see the two of them together. So when, when what happens next to Lenor happens, I'm just going to be going, not Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lenor is drunk. They're both drunk. I, I don't want to pretend that mm-hmm. Carl isn't. Um, <laughs> good point. Good point. And, um, you know, he's just like kind of like, hey, we're having a good time, all this. And Rhaenyra's like, I'd like to speak to my husband alone. <laughs> um, and Carl kind of leaves them. And this is when Lenor gets into the fact that, oh, we were getting drunk and we heard there's a new war on the Stepstones. And it's time to go on another adventure. Finally, I have something to do in this godforsaken city. Um, there's a Tyroshi general, a giant who dyes his hair purple and wears women frocks, and I'm going to go fight him. And Rhaenyra's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Do you not realize that we are like in a real shitstorm here? And I use shitstorm specifically because they talk about it as a storm that they need to either sail around or sail away from. Very common in the Valerian household to frame everything as storm chasing or storm uh, navigating. But And Rhaenyra spelled it out as like, you've got your end of the steel. You've been able to drink the finest wines. You've been able to sleep with whatever boys you want and otherwise mostly enjoy life. Um, You haven't even had to do most of the roles of performing fatherhood. But right now, when everything is closing in on us, you cannot leave us. Um, And this is where Lenor is like, well, the wise man flees the storm, which is advice that we'll see Rhaenyra take to heart later in this episode. But it's also possibly a mistake. Um, As we know, uh, Rhaenyra leaving King's Landing is an event that precipitates a lot of what happens once the dance kicks off proper. Um, And at this point, Rhaenyra has to literally be like, I command you not to leave. I can't have you sailing off when I really need you here. And for his part, I'm not going to give Lenor any credit here, but he's like, yeah, you're right. I, I can't leave right now. I think we get a good sense of both of their perspectives, that we get enough to understand how Lenor sees things, but also how he looks to Rhaenyra. Like, he has had to accept that the kids bearing his name are not his, and he has had to 
live his true life in secret. And there is a, a sense of unfairness, I think, for him. Like, he has to... Oh, he has to suffer now because Harwin screwed up, so Lenor has to change all his plans. Like, okay, if he doesn't feel the instinctive need to protect this family unit, at some level, it's because it's not his family unit. But at another level, it is, because this is the deal he struck with Rhaenyra, and they've both kept their word. Lenor seems to want credit for that, while again, Rhaenyra just points out, no, you, you have done nothing but the bare minimum. You have not gone above and beyond your, your duty. You've done what we agree to, and I've held up my end of the bargain, too. And now you just want to run off across the narrow sea to Essos. Again, as with Damon, Essos is positioned as this place the Westerosi go when they want to escape who they are and live without thought of the future. You know, Robert dreams of just going off and being a sellsword across the narrow sea. And there is something wistful when Leonor says he just wants to be at sea again. Like, that does get me, because that's some, like something his dad would say. And, uh, you know, as you say, he's, he's, he's feeling like he's, he's lacking that, that visceral experience and, and something new over the horizon. His life just seems kind of repetitive and, and predictable. But Rhaenyra is absolutely right that this moment was the whole reason they made this deal in the first place. Like, if you leave now, none of, none of whatever sacrifices you may have made, none of them meant anything if you abandon ship now. And so, yeah, I love it. In the scene, Rhaenyra has to fall back on royal authority. Or was, uh, Asha say in A Feast for Crows, I'm your queen, not your wife. And Rhaenyra is both Lanor's queen and his wife. But yeah, she, then she just gives the order. And that is just kind of like, you can see it on her face. Like she didn't want to because that just kills any intimacy between them. If I have to literally order you to stay, but if she has to, she will. So we cut back across the narrow sea and rejoin Lena and her family. Um, this scene starts with Reyna holding a dragon act to the fire. Reyna is one of uh, Damon and Lena's two daughters that we meet so far. And she's uh, holding the dragon, uh, the dragon egg rather, to a fire. Um, Reyna does not have a dragon yet, has not claimed one, or has not had a hatchling. Um, and her mother, Lena, comes in and says, don't worry about it. Some of us, uh, what's it called, get our dragons at older ages. Lena herself got Vagar at age 15. And she also mentions that half the eggs don't hatch. And as she's doing that, she's rubbing her very pregnant belly because that's going to be foreshadowing for what happens at the end of this episode. Um, and while Reyna is worried that she doesn't have a dragon, it runs very parallel to what's happening with Amond over back in Westeros. Um, he too is fretting about not having a dragon yet. Um, and we kind of see the parallel and kind of the burden that what it means to have a dragon to these Targaryen descendants, how important it is to their identity and possibly positions of power, um, to the point where... They even highlight that Damon kind of ignores Reyna and she's the non-dragon riding child. She doesn't fit into this image of, you know, swashbuckling adventurer the way that even his wife already fits into with uh, Lena riding Vagar. So um, I, I think it's po poignant, like the fact that these Targaryens are missing dragons. Um, and that kind of leads into a further scene where Damon goes back to Lena and she's saying, hey, Rhaenyra had another kid. And Damon's like... Does this one also look like the commander of the City Watch? Um, so they both kind of have a joke at it. So both are kind of in on it. They know what's going on. Uh, but, you know, Lena here presses like, I want to go back to Driftmark. I miss my brother. And I think I think you do, too, um, which shows that Lena kind of understands Damon better than really anyone has up until this point or probably ever will. Totally. And again, I would have I would have liked to see more of why that is, like how Lena developed this understanding. But it does fit Damon's character. I think that he would ignore Reyna without seeming to even realize it. 
because he's just drawn to dragons at this unconscious level. He's just a moth to a flame. As Lana says, just like you, you make a pretense of not being a part of this, but you're just reading their stories over and over again. Why else would you be doing that? And she knows his weak spot, that his weak spot has always been his brother. And Damon does seem to have moved past, you know, breaking things to get Viserys to notice him. But he still hasn't filled the void inside. And naturally, like all of us at one point or another, he is trying to fill it with booze. As he says, I miss Westerosi wine was strong enough to knock you out. That's what he misses. He wants that comfortable oblivion back. And what they drink in Pentos is just leaving him a little too aware of himself and his surroundings. And he hates that shit. But even that has a sympathetic aspect to it because, you know, when she's talking about, Lena's talking about being the blood of old Valyria, Damon is right when he points out, well, Valyria's gone. So what does that even mean now? We don't, we don't belong anywhere. We have no home. And it's, that's a question we deal with in real life. Like how long do you, an individual, a family, a whole people, how long do you live in a place before that's where you come from? And there is no there is no objective answer to that question. You know, if you zoom out far enough, everything is mutable. Like Davos says in his first POV chapter, well, eventually my grandsons will joust with the Celtigars and the Valerians. And, you know, 100 years down the line, people will be like, yeah, the Onion, that's how Seaworth. They've been around for however long, whatever. They're one of the houses. And but the flip side of that is is you might feel like none of it meant anything and nowhere is actually your foundation. And that's kind of how Damon has always felt. And yeah, I also love that even here across the narrow sea, it's a running joke that Rhaenyra's kids were fathered by Harwin. And that, that's the kind of thing where not seeing their relationship develop actually works, because you don't need to see Damon learn that for the first time. You just need to see him roll his eyes and go, let me guess, this one's got brown hair too. That, that lets you feel those years, even if you didn't get to see them. So after about 40 minutes of learning about the new political realities after this time jump and getting reacquainted with all these characters, we are thrust into our first small council scene with all these older characters. Um, and it's great. I think it was actually very smart to kind of lay out the relationships between all these players 10 years removed from the previous episode before we get into some of the nitty gritty uh, governance of the realm stuff, which starts out with discussion of the latest Blackwood and Bracken uh, feud, which is seems to be a land dispute, like where the borders end of one house and the other start, which is very common to them. And we get mention of Lord Grover of River Run, which we just need to highlight because anyone who might be unaware where um, House Tully at this point was going through their Sesame Street era of naming. <laughs> um, they only hit us with Lord Grover here. They mentioned the sun, but I think they just don't want to be too Sesame Streety here at the moment. You, you gotta, you gotta walk people into this just, just a little bit. You can't necessarily hit them with Elmo right away. <laughs> yeah, you start with Grover and you work your way up to the Elmo uh, rung exactly. of the ladder. Exactly. But Rhaenyra actually has some, you know, pretty sound you know, political guidance here is like, well, the locals who have lived on the borders will probably know exactly where the, you know, one fiefdom ends and the other begins. So we can just talk about them and come upon a, you know, best agreed upon. But as she does this fairly wise booze, Allison just scoffs at her. Yeah, that's a great acting by Olivia Cook in this scene. I think familiar to anyone who's ever been in a meeting where two people you just know if everyone else left the room, they would just tear each other to pieces and they're only holding back because all you other people are in the room <laughs> like that. The way she just says, of course, just barely under her breath <laughs> when Rhaenyra pisses her off. And I, yeah, I can't wait to see in a later episode what we've already seen in the trailer when she does directly physically attack Rhaenyra. That's clearly going to be the payoff for all this energy she's keeping under the skin here. And yeah, they, br they bring back the 
the endless infinite uh, Blackwood versus Bracken feud, which is good to keep peppering in there because it does uh, run parallel to what's happening with the Targaryens, that they're headed for their own considerably more disastrous civil war. Yeah, I kind of like that. Um, sometimes Game of Thrones, I felt like, would reference some of the world building stuff, but just to be like, hey, we're mentioning something. But it you feels know this like name. With, mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like with this and the Stepstones a little bit and the Triarchy that they're kind of hitting on the same beats rather than just pulling a different name out of the hat, which I'm kind of hoping has some payoff down the road, especially because we know the Blackwood specifically will have a bigger part to play in the dance. So... Um, who won't have too big a part to play is Lord Beesbury, um, who I don't think we have a lot of time left with. Um, tick, 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 tick. And he seems to be a little bit mentally checking out anyways, because after they move off um, of the Blackwood Black- Bracken feud and start talking about the Stepstones, like him in the rant randomly just says, but what about the Blackwood Bracken thing? Like he is not aware that they've moved well past him. He is one of the people who's going to be left behind in the ever shifting powers at the small council. But uh, they speak about their military, quote unquote, victory at the Stepstones that they won there, but they did nothing to hold it. Like in Rhaenyra's like, we should have built watchtowers. We should have put a garrison there. We made absolutely no efforts to hold it once we won it, which is very similar to how many of the characters talk about the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, in the fact that a lot of these people have plans to win the throne, but very little to do what to do afterwards. We hear uh, everyone's favorite character, Talisa, uh, t- talk about this with Rob Stark is like, you plan to kill Joffrey and win the Iron Throne, then what? And Rob's like, I don't know, I'm going to go home or something like that. And like, Talisa's like, you know, everything will fall apart if you do that. And that's kind of setting up what's going to happen with the Iron Throne in the dance that all these people want to hold the throne, but what it actually means to rule from that chair, um, that gets lost on them. There's that perpetual motion machine quality where it's like, we're doing this because that's what we do. And what we're going to do later is more of this. And the the question of, but what for, but why kind of gets lost, which I think is both a, a solid political critique and also ties into the character drama in terms of the ironic tragedy of it all, that you're, you're, you're giving everything you got, you're giving up that what you love for something that you can't even define what it is you do with if you got it. And it uh, Davos, as usual, comes up with a a great catchphrase to kind of cut through this problem in Storm of Swords when he says that you're trying to, he tells Stannis, you're trying to win the throne to save the realm. But what you need to be doing is save the realm to win the throne. Like you have got everything backwards. Like, and so many of these characters, right right down to Laris's monologue at the end, I think are are trapped in that logic. So Allison kind of wants to call this uh, small council meeting short, which I definitely get that energy. I've been many meetings where it's like, can we just end this? No, can we end this fifteen minutes ago, please? (laughs) This could have been an email. Is basically the energy Allison has. Mm -hmm. But this is when Rhaenyra is like, I actually still have one more piece of business, and Viserys commands everyone to sit down. And what she's proposing is a marriage between Jaceris, her oldest son, and Helena, the oldest daughter of Alicent, um, which, you know, Viserys is like, yeah, this is great. This is perfect. This will sew up all the problems that have been, you know, leaking out of our house, which just so happens that Rhaenyra starts leaking milk at this moment, um, just like she was leaking blood earlier. I'm going to refrain from making a bad blood and cheese joke here, but it is very much that as Rhaenyra is trying to 
govern and secure her position and actually try to be a political player, she's still somewhat confined by her gender role. She's like literally bleeding and milking. Um, she should be resting. She or she should be able to have some break from all this. But because her position is so precarious, she is forced to, you know, come to the small council and do this. And, you know, Viserys, he's like, yeah, this is a great match. Let's do this. Let's put everything behind us. Everyone can agree. And then we can all be in on the slide together. It's like, we've all kind of made that secret pact. It's like pretty little liars, but uh, game of Thrones version. But Allison is just absolutely insulted at this. She says she'll, will consider this publicly, but alone with Viserys, she's like, I will die before I take this. I will not have my son marrying a bastard. They've both kind of gone too far to turn back. Now they're kind of trapped within their mindset. It's a zero sum game. And I do think, it's a genuine attempt on Rhaenyra's part to disarm and start mm-hmm. fresh. But what that says to Alicent is Rhaenyra's on the defensive, that she's running scared after Harwin's antics in the yard. And she's also got that, you know, that imperious, overproud Hightower attitude of, oh, that's how you're trying to get away with your indiscretions. You're trying to launder your bastards through my line. And as it was she and Viserys were talking on the stairs, and uh, Viserys says she is sincere, and Alicent says she's desperate. And I think they're both right. Like, I think Rhaenyra g- genuinely does want peace here. But also, if if Rhaenyra was in a more advantageous position, I don't think she'd be suing for peace at that point. She'd be uh, carrying on to victory, and Alicent would be in the one to try to ma- Alicent would be the one to try and make a deal. And in that kind of context, any attempt at kindness is going to come off like an insult. Like, when Rhaenyra offers an egg to Aemond, that's, you know, Viserys says that's a kindly gift. But for Alicent, it's like, oh, what? You're saying he can't do it on his own? Like, it's a reminder that Aemond doesn't have one yet. So it just kind of festers. Oh, yeah. Um, I really like what you said about she is sincere versus she is desperate because it really is both. Um, just because something's a desperate play doesn't make it a bad play. I think is mm-hmm. actually, with the card she is holding in her hand, is making a pretty smart play. And it's one that, you know, most of the people there at the small council could theoretically get behind, except for Alicent, who, of course, is why we don't. But moving on, um, so they all return to Viserys' bedchamber, and Alicent is still kind of having this argument with him. But then Lionel Strong walks in, and he wants to tender his resignation, but he can't because he can't name the thing that he wants to tender his resignation about. And Viserys is like, if you can't name the thing, you 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 cannot resign. You either have to say what you're resigning about or you're sticking around. And Alicent at first is like, wait, this is possibly an opportunity if I can get... um, Because I think when she was scoffing at Rhaenyra back in the small council, part of it was that um, Lionel Strong was kind of on on Rhaenyra's side with the Blackwood Bracken thing. And I think Alan's like, of course Lionel Strong will side with Rhaenyra because of the Harwin Strong thing. So she views, you know, possibly the removal of Lionel Strong as a way to get more power onto the small council if she can get someone in her camp to replace his position. So she's like, ooh, Lionel, he might be stepping away. This is good for me. This is a way to swing power back in my favor. But again, Viserys refuses, which Allison kind of takes as a defeat. And uh, eventually, Lionel's like, okay, you won't take my resignation. Please allow me to escort Lionel back to Hall so I can set him up as Lord, which will at least get him out of this, you know, political murk that's happening right now in King's Landing. I can p- possibly give him another scolding and then I'll be right back to resume my handship. I love how this is just a total inverse of earlier scenes with Otto Hightower in the season where Otto was fired and Lionel is just trying to quit. 
And Otto brought these oblique accusations against Rhaenyra, and Lionel brings, well, I guess oblique accusations against Rhaenyra, but he's more focused on his own son's involvement. And I, I, it's interesting that he puts such importance on every fishwife in King's Landing spreading the gossip, because it's just like this, this is, again, this is the narrative that is already out there, and this fits into it, and it doesn't matter what the truth is, it doesn't even matter really what happened in the yard, what matters is what people believe. But in spite of that, in spite of what all the fishwives are going to be saying, Lionel still can't bring himself to say it out loud. And I love that Alicent tries to drag it out of him like, yes, Lord Strong, be specific. Someone sit, someone, please, someone else besides me, say it out loud. And I do get why Alicent would be just kind of losing it at this point of just of years of watching people fumble around and their eyes dart and they go, um, uh, the situation of the, it's just like, at some point, yeah, I would break down and just grab their shoulders and just say the thing, say the thing. And I think that's why very deliberately before we get to the next scene with Allison and Laris, they actually so, show Allison walking back to her bedroom. She walks past a couple of handmaids or serving ladies. And then she actually just takes a minute and just like leans up against the wall. And you can see that she's just, exasperated and isolated she's like it's like uh mugatu and zoolander it's like she feels like she's taking crazy pills there's just this very it's one look (laughs) you know he's got one look and no one's willing to actually speak truth to it um but like i was saying this is all setting up a dinner scene where lara strong is already seated at the dinner table in her bedroom and he's already started helping himself to food and wine i mean Meat without wine is a sin, as uh, Laris says. So he's clearly someone who enjoys things in life, which I like to see. Good for you, Laris Strong. But it's kind of a tables have turned situation because as we've kind of seen already that Laris is kind of the informant for Alicent. But this is one time where Alicent has information that Laris does not. And that is, what did my father come to the king with? And this is where, or I mean... Laris might have had some inkling, but he didn't really know how that conversation would have gone. And Allison tells him, well, he didn't accept his resignation. And Laris right away knows, oh, because my dad wouldn't say it. My dad wouldn't say the thing. So that's why this couldn't happen. And he says the truth comes in many flavors, which I think is something we're seeing all through the show is the truth comes in many flavors. That's why a lot of things are kind of being hidden from us. Like, did Damon say air for the day? Or what exactly set off Kristen Cole against Joffrey Lonmouth? We don't get the full truth. We just get a lot of things we can triangulate around the truth to kind of determine what happens. And this is where Allison's like, you know what? Things would be better if my father was at court, um, mostly just because he'd be on my side and I just need people on my side and she's just struggling to find anyone to be with her besides Laris and Kristen Cole. I, I really, I love Laris in this scene. I love how he's, he's both obsequious and kind of sarcastic about it. Like all his, his compliments are just coming with little scare quotes and he's just like saying the things he's supposed to say as someone who works for Allison. But as you say, he's the one in the position of power here in terms of how he's framed already in the room just casually eating and drinking without her and he has the excuse of i didn't want the meat to get cold and then yeah allison points out well the wine's not gonna get cold so <laughs> what's up with that and I, he has that that uh that quality that that Varys often had where he's even as he's talking about very important things he's just treating it like it's an interesting logic problem that he's just thinking about now like he says oh truth has many flavors you know like the meal he's eating and he, he, again, that all that focus on euphemisms and not quite saying the thing. He asks Allison to really think about what it is she's asking Viserys to do or what it is she expects him to do. Like, will Viserys doom his daughter to 
And then the maid walks in and cuts it off. And La- and uh, Laris never has to finish that sentence. That's something else you can't say. You can't broach the idea of having Rhaenyra killed because Viserys is never going to do that. Even if, you know, she's committed treason and she's made war on his family from within and everything Alicent would say, Rhaenyra is, is never going to pay the ultimate price if her father's in charge. And it's interesting back and forth when Laris tries to get Alicent to em- empathize with Viserys a little bit and be like, well, you know, surely you would you would have that same weakness. You would have that same blindness. And Alicent says no, that she she thinks she'd be that hard-hearted even about her own children if they got in the way this hard. It's a sad thing that that's what so many of these people think they should be aspiring to is not recognizing your kids as your kids. Like, that's the ideal. That's you're being a good political operator. Like when, uh, when Lara says that, because of Harwin, my father cannot give unbiased counsel to the king. And I'm like, I don't really think there is such a thing as unbiased counsel. Like, it's just a question of, of what your biases are and what ends you put them to. And like, but that seems to be Laris's ideal. Like, I will be so purged of all human ties, I can give this evanescent thing, this unbiased counsel. And I think Alicent kind of, even though she's maybe coming off selfish, I think she has a point when she's like, I just, I want someone partial to me. Because that's that is what a lot of politics is 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 you know understanding who whose interests can line up with yours and who's going to be sympathetic to you. Not necessarily it's not necessarily always about who has the most the platonic ideal of good counsel. And yeah, Laris. Then we get to see him on his own going out picking prisoners to to go burn down Harrenhal. And this is where you can compare uh, Laris to Varys. People have compared him to Littlefinger. For me, in this scene, he starts to get like heavy Kyburn vibes, like he's down here in the cells torturing people. And it's not like Ramsay or Joffrey, like he's not even necessarily enjoying it. Like his expression doesn't really change. I think if you took his, uh, took his pulse, his heartbeat, his heart rate wouldn't have changed a bit. This is just, this is the job. And, you know, if you people flinch from it, you're just not up to the job. Yeah, it's very telling. You see him start the scene with like, it's, it's a sin to have meat without wine. And then like five seconds later, he's cutting off tongues himself and he's doing it pretty dis- dispassionately. We get to see the Lord Confessor really do his work for the first time, which is nice. And I like the cutting of tongues. It serves the plot purposes here, but it's also just a nice shout out to Varys and his little birds who were not muted in the Game of Thrones show. But it is like, it is pretty much what justice kind of looks like in Westeros, as fucked up as it is. It's like, if you allow us to cut something off of yours, then we will allow you back into polite society. Um, and Laris is just making sure when they're offered polite society again, they can't say anything about what he asked them to do. So now we cut to yet another birthing scene. Uh, this time we're seeing Lena Velaryon uh, try to give birth in her place in Pentos. Um, you see Damon's in the room kind of watching. But the doctor there, I don't think they have maesters in Pentos. I don't know what the term is for him. So I'm just going to call him a doctor. Is like, I've done everything I know by my craft. I cannot get the baby to come. Um, it's very possible she's going to die. Um, there is a small chance that, you know, we can go in and get the baby out and maybe the baby survives, um, which again is supposed to make you think back to Emma Targaryen in the very first episode. And Damon does kind of shake him off as like, no, we're not going to be doing that. But before they can, uh, you know, go back to see Lena, she's already left the birthing bed. She's wandered out to Vagar and basically does fire or suicide by dragon. This, yeah, this is a great bookend with with the opening scene of this episode and with, with yeah with Emma's pregnancy as well. And as you say, Damon, he does not make the decision his brother did, and. As such, Lena gets to, to die on her own terms. And this is what really, uh, I think, 
gives the lie to the idea that a lot of people were saying after the first episode, like, what Viserys didn't do anything really wrong. She was going to die either way at that point. It was just about saving the kid. But it makes so much of a difference that Lena gets to to die the way she wants and she dies she that she dies specifically to escape her own pain and that's that's her reason for death and it's not just taken away from her to serve the patriarchy that she gets to go out with with dignity and with control over her own body and there's the the hideous irony of her wanting to die as a dragon rider but then having to die by forcing your own dragon to kill you and there's yeah that that great great subtle animation with Vagar I thought that was really well done where She's hesitating and she seems like scared, but also just confused. Like, like maybe Vagar's has just never had to doubt an order before and didn't even know that's, that's something I can do is doubt an order. What's going on? It's like, like, you know, the first time in a sci-fi movie that a robot experiences feelings, <laughs> independent thoughts and are just kind of confused by it. And that's Vagar here. And she, you know, if she could speak, she'd just be like, please, please don't make me do it. But she does. And it's it's a great little moment. I was thinking about it when I was rewatching it. Like Viserys said, there's a there's a mystery to nature or the workings of nature, whatever he says. And that's Vagar here. Obviously, she can't talk. She's not even as expressive as like a dog might be. So you can guess what's going on in a dragon's head, but it's only ever a guess. Yeah, it's honestly, it reminds me a lot of Daenerys walking into the pyre for Drogo. I'm um, just kind of like walking mm-hmm. into the fire and this would be like the worst case scenario for Daenerys in that. Yeah. And it's also a little bit like uh, Arya shooing off uh, Nymeria, just like making an animal that's kind of bonded to you do what it doesn't want to do. Um, and this is, you know, that's kind of a death in its own way, the separation of Arya and Nymeria. And this is far more literal and far more um, hard to watch as as it is. So we cut back to uh, Harwin uh, with his kids, basically. Um, He is somewhat owning his role as a father to them. He is, um, you know, you can see that the kids actively like him and he's very kind with the newborn baby. There's this unspoken tension with Rhaenyra that they're kind of trying to look at each other, trying to look away, trying not to give too much away, gentle touch on the elbow. Um, it's like one of those things where it's like they know they have to hide it, but also the energy or chemistry they have between them is transcends what they know they should be doing. And I think it's really sweet. Um, and this all sets up the fact that Jaceris, whether he knew it earlier or this is just the moment he decides to put voice to it, he um, as Harwin leaves, he's like, that's my dad, right? That's got to be my dad. And Rhaenyra has to be like, you're a Targaryen, and that's the only thing that matters. And as we've already seen, that's true as far as the dragons are concerned. It's just not true with other human beings. <laughs> that's the problem. And as, as many people immediately pointed out, there's the great parallel between this scene and the scene between Ned and Jon Snow back in season one of Game of Thrones, where you have the, the parent walking off with the promise to see the kid again, and then, of course, they never come back. Although it's kind of an inverse here in that John, because Ned just walks away, John doesn't get to know who his parents are. And for Jaceris, he's learning who his true parents are for what might or might not be uh, the first time. And that's something, I think I've said this before, that I always forget that Ned-John farewell moment is not in the books. And like, man, it's like, what a missed opportunity. How, how do you not write a moment like that between those two, given their relationship? And it's so I'm glad they have their own version of it here because it's it's very sweet and very sad. Yeah, I think Harwin has a line like, you know, don't be a stranger or I'll be a stranger the next time you see yeah. me. And it's one of those things yeah. as an ass sicko. As soon as you hear the stranger, death, you, you knew what's coming. Yep. It's great. 
So we cut back to Lainey and Carl fighting in the <laughs> courtyard again. And I'm sorry, I'm probably going to do it every time. Please do it every time. And, um, you know, they seem to be doing pretty well with swords. And then Rhaenyra comes up to them and is like, we're going back to Dragonstone. Like, things getting way too real here. Um, the burden of the accusations is just a little too much, even despite the proposition I proposed. Um, I guess that's what you do with propositions. You propose them. But, <laughs> uh, like, even with all that, she's like, we have to get out of here. It's just not a great environment for us, for our kids. Um, and you know what? Carl can come too. He's allowed. It's it's a very funny moment as as like Lenor keeps like hesitating and he can't he can't bring himself to say why he doesn't want to leave King's Landing and Carl's standing right there and then finally just Rhaenyra just loses patience and rolls her eyes like yeah yeah him too fine let's just can we go can we get it over with but it's it's moving as well that she's she's really trying hard to make their little family unit work and she even after being as rightfully annoyed as she was with Lenor earlier. She still appreciates that this is about giving as much as getting. Like she, Lainor has to be able to carve out his own space and have his own life and have things that make him happy. Or it doesn't matter what Rhaenyra demands or commands him to do. It's not going to work if if they don't have that give and take. Um, we get an approaching shot with uh, Lionel and Harwin returning to their home castle, and we can see off in the distance Heron Hall with its familiar burned towers from the old show. Um, but then off in the distance, out at the tree line, you see these men in hoods. They're the men that Laris uh, gave charge when he took them out of the cells at King's Landing. You can see that they have firefly, firefly pins on their uh, shoulders. So much like Littlefinger, he has fashioned his own little symbol um, as the firefly. And this is all setting up that one they are going to set Harwin's room aflame. And then we see as Lionel dies in trying to save him from that fire. I love that Heron Hall is burning down again. <laughs> this place just can't catch a break. It reminds me of the great Simpsons line when, when Ned loses his house uh, to a tornado and then everyone's coming along. Hey, honey, you got, honey, you got to come back. It's a miracle. And he just goes, oh, what happened now? The rubble burned down. <laughs> and like, uh, yeah, this is just a, it's a very quick and brutal scene. And I think in part it has to be so quick and focused on the two of them because I think visually it would look weird for this ruined castle to be on fire. Like, it doesn't quite have the same punch as Winterfell burning, because it looked really nice, you know, an episode ago, and now it's burning down. Hall already looks like shit. <laughs> it's kind of hard to convey that place on fire being dangerous, so I'm glad it was just a couple of quick shots, mostly focused just on the two strong men. And yeah, I love that. I love that we see Lionel, even after dressing down his son, and being like, you've ruined the family, everything is over. He's still, it's still his son. And in the, in the same way that Harwin still wants to defend his kids, no matter what it looks like, Lionel still wants to save his son, even after that that strife between them. That's how he dies, and that 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 familial love in the middle of of the worst thing imaginable. That that's just a perfect segue right into the last strong into Laris's monologue about what he's done. Yeah, um, and it, it is great because Heron Hall is a venue we're going to return to a couple times, very prominently in Dance with Dragons. So instantly putting it back into our mindset as a cursed place immediately helps uh, with some of what's going to come down the line. But like you said, the big finish, the big climax, one of the coolest parts, I think, of the entire series so far is Laris's monologue that kind of overplays as we see the fallout of what is happening. I don't have it in full, but essentially he is saying, what are children but a weakness? It's a way that we convince ourselves that we can cheat the darkness, that we can 
have something that lasts longer than our own lives and that through doing this, we get to essentially do the Tywin thing. It's all about legacy. We can keep the family name alive. But what Laris is saying is that's not enough. Love is a downfall, which sounds more like Cersei than Tywin, to be honest. But I, I think it's great. And while this is all being spoken by Laris very nicely, um, we're cutting to Rhaenyra returning to Dragonstone. Viserys is in his room just kind of looking around at the rats crawling around on his mantle. We see the people cleaning up the fire at Harrenhal. Uh, we see Lena's corpse just burning in the morning dew. Um, it has a very familiar vibe as that ba- Baelish chaos is a ladder scene, just kind of cutting all over the kingdoms or even across to the Narrow Sea, just to kind of do a quick check-in where everyone is as Laris kind of makes his big profession about children and our delusions as trying to fight against mortality in that way. Earlier in the episode, Lionel referred to a shadow hanging over his family. And of course, in the moment, he meant uh, Harwin fathering Rhaenyra's children. But uh looks like Laris was the shadow hanging over the family after all. And I, yeah, I love his, that closing monologue where he just, he has just this grim perspective on family and love and just like, you know, the, the bloodlines running through the opening credits. Like, it's all bullshit, according to Laris. It's folly and futility, he calls it. Because he makes this argument that desire is really about escaping death. And none of us can do that. None of us have figured that out, no matter how high we rise. I mean, Black Heron learned that. No matter how big Heron Hall was, it didn't stop him when dragons fly. And we keep learning that over and over. And there's that, yeah, incredible cut to Lena's burnt corpse just linking these fires together and all these attempts to to make something real and carve out the space for love and family. And Laris makes the case that maybe we should stop trying or maybe even trying is the problem in the first place. As a, as a big fan of Hall, one of my favorite settings in the world of Ice and Fire, this this last little speech from Laris was everything I could have asked for. I love the way he he builds up the Hall curse as something that's just like it's metaphysically part of the place it's like baked into the castle makes us instruments of its will but as allison points out this was your will this was your action and whatever might be going on with heron hall whatever it is it's something that requires mortal men to act on it it reminds me of how melisandre clearly has legit powers she does birth the two shadow babies but when she says that her burning leeches actually killed three other kings that's clearly bullshit as stannis does point out this that was walder frey that wasn't your god you're clearly just taking credit for it. So it's I like that that ambiguity about magic and politics and how they relate and how people have to deal with it. And Heron Hall is a perfect backdrop for that. Exactly. Um, they say the line blood the blood is mixed into the mortar there, which I don't know if that's a line that's been said about Heron Hall, but I instantly thought of Astapor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, bricks and blood built Astapor and bricks and blood its people, and it feels very similar. Uh, maybe it's fire and blood with Heron Hall, but. Uh, speaking of, I mean, Laris is essentially binding Allison to him with fire and blood, with a fire that kills his own blood. And um, basically, Allison becomes somewhat complicit in this crime, even though she did not ask for it. She now no longer has plausible deniability about that. And Laris can even say, "Is like, well, we were having dinner and she said how great it would be if the Strongs were eliminated. Like he could play that up very great. So he kind of inserts himself as like, almost the first major villain of the series um, because as we cut away from this grim imagery, this, you know, skeleton on the shores or the rotting Viserys, here is Laris holding a flower, like the perfect image of a man in tune with nature. But, you know, while he's talking about life, you know, he's um, reaping death all around him through his actions. 
Yeah, he's functionally saying, why have children? It's what the, the Emily Dickinson poem of, you know, man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf, get out as quick as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. I don't think I got that word for word right, but it's, <laughs> it's something like that, where it's just like, if, if everything is this bad, why are we keeping this, this, the grim human comedy going? Why should we bother? Who are we kidding? And that is, just as Alicent, just as Kristen Cole took things a step too far with Alicent. Earlier in the episode, Alicent is horrified by this. And clearly she just, she didn't know what she had in Laris. Like she thought of him as her, her sidekick that she's, she kind of adopted in the same way she probably thinks about Kristen Cole. And now she's like, oh, this guy is kind of out of my control. And on rewatch, all I could think about was how earlier in the episode, she wanted Aegon to look after his brother. And she was really worried that Aegon didn't feel this bond with Aemond. And now she's staring down a guy who just burned his brother alive, along with their father. And he doesn't even seem phased by it. And why is that? Because in Laris's mind, he has avoided the trap that Viserys keeps falling into. You love heedlessly and stupidly, and you fail to make the right call. Love makes you stupid. That's also the argument Cersei makes. The problem is, is that lack of love makes you something not quite human anymore. You're more like the literal firebug that is Laris's little pet sigil. And uh, the, yeah, I love that cut back to him, the romantic chivalric image holding his flower. And the irony of all that flower imagery is that, yeah, L Laris does not want to propagate. Laris does not want to have kids seed a whole new generation. The only seed he's going to sow are those of fire and blood. And that is going to wrap us up for our episode on Season 1, Episode 6 of House of the Dragon, Princess and the Queen. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we always appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiif, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiif, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiif at gmail.com, and you can follow me at PorkWenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. You can find my coverage of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And I recently just put out my first episode on Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, for our patrons. We got another Lord of the Rings episode coming up in a couple of weeks for patrons on uh, Book 5, Chapter 8, The Houses of the Healing. But uh, next up for us is going to be our next Song of Ice and Fire episode. We're going to be covering A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4, very appropriately, as that is a chapter where Jamie returns to Harren Hall. <laughs> so that worked out well for us. Mammoth chapter. I think the only the only negative thing I can say about that chapter is it's not quite as great as the the next two Jamie chapters, which somehow get even better. But this one is still going to be great to cover with you, sir. Yeah, I'm super excited. As I said in my first episode with you, Jamie, especially in a storm of swords, is a highlight for me, and hopefully I'll be able to bring my A game for that episode. Absolutely, me too. I got I got to prep myself for it. I got to go through the exercise montage <laughs> just just to get ready for it. So that's going to be out for folks for patrons starting on Thursday, and then for general release on Monday and then we will of course see you next week for more House of the Dragon. <laughs>